This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Dave Nadig. And really, if you're at all interested in how ETFs are researched and put together and assembled and manufactured and regulated and traded and retired, well, really, I don't know any single person with a greater body of knowledge from more aspects of the finance industry uh, about ETFs than Dave. He, he was at Barclays in the early days uh, when the predecessor to iShares came about. He spent time working with a number of consultants uh, as a consultant early on in the ETF industry. And he has been working at ETF.com, which is probably the leading media publication about ETFs, uh, pretty much since the beginning of, of the world's understanding that ETFs were significant. Previously, as uh, chief investment officer, subsequently, when it became part of FactSet as a head of analytics, and now as CEO slash managing director since CBO uh, bought ETF.com, uh, the Chicago Board of Options Exchange Global Markets is now the owner of ETF.com. So with no further ado, here is my conversation with David Nadig. When it comes to ETFs, my guest today is probably the single most knowledgeable person in the world. Dave Nadig is the managing director at ETF.com, which is a subsidiary of CBOE Global Markets. Dave was ETF.com's chief investment officer, and he returned to ETF.com as CEO in November 2016. Uh, he was previously managing director at Barclays Global Investors, where he helped to design some of the world's first ETFs including the development and marketing of the World Equity Benchmark ETF series. You probably know that by its current name, iShares. He's conducted some of the earliest research on fee-only financial advisors and the rise of indexing. He is the co-author of the definitive book on ETFs, A Comprehensive Guide to Exchange-Traded Funds, published by the CFA Institute. Dave Nadig, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks for having me. So you and I know each other for a long time, and I'm familiar with your career path. We'll come back to that a little later. Let's talk about this whole ETF thingy. Is, is this going to be big one day? What, it's just, what it's just a fad. It's just, just a fad. Just a temporary thing. So, so the key question that comes up all the time, what is the underlying advantage of ETFs versus mutual funds. Well, if you think about it, mutual funds are actually one of the most ridiculous financial inventions in history. If I went to you and said, hey, I'm going to sell you a car, mm -hmm. and you're going to give me a whole bunch of money right now, but I'm not going to tell you exactly how much the car costs. We'll true it up later. Yeah, I'll get you to would, that at the end of the day. You'd never buy that car, right? right? You'd never say, ah, it could be 35000 It could be forty. We'll tell you at 4 o'clock. Right. And that's <laughs> how mutual funds work. It's literally the only financial product that has forward-based pricing, which is kind of ridiculous. And there have been innumerable cases over the last 40 years in which 
you know, that's been abused or misused. We had examples in the 80s. We had front-running issues. And mm-hmm. so— Nine, Late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, exactly. Sure. I mean, over and over again, this happens. Anytime you create that you know, in, intense, lengthy time arbitrage between 9.30 in the morning and 4 o'clock, somebody's going to figure out how to game it. And ETFs, in part, one of the things they do is they solve that problem because they allow that pricing to be negotiated— uh, and I think that's meaning the key they one. trade intraday, and you can see the price that's on the screen is literally the price it is. Exactly, and you can decide as an investor whether you want to pay that price. Now, there's some costs to that, and there's some benefits to that. Uh, if we're talking about U.S. equities, we're trading, you know, SPY, which is the biggest ETF, it trades the S and P 500. Anybody can tally up all the stocks in the S and P 500 in a spreadsheet and come up with what the right price is for mm-hmm. that based on the last traded price of the stocks. A little tougher if you're trying to trade Japan at 2 o'clock in the afternoon in New York because what are all those stocks actually worth? Well, that's a negotiation. That's price discovery. So ETFs not only give you access to those markets that are closed or less liquid, but they give you another price discovery mechanism to go along with it. So in other words, even though we don't know the true arbitrage price of Japan 2 p.m. New York time, you get at least a, a rough wisdom of the crowd estimate in how that ETF is trading, assuming it's liquid. Because as we'll discuss later, some ETFs seem to trade by appointment only. Yeah, if you're lucky, if you can even get an appointment. Yeah, there's definitely some haves and have nots in the ETF space. I mean, there's just, there's so many of them at this point. So one of the things that comes up all the time when we're comparing mutual funds and ETFs is in a non-qualified portfolio, meaning a fully taxable account, you could have a mutual fund that doesn't show any gains for the year, and yet you get hit with capital gains taxes. That doesn't really seem to happen with ETFs. Yeah, there's a fairness issue in that. And that's and I think that's the other big advantage of ETFs in a taxable environment. Because of the way ETF shares are created and redeemed, um, which is done through market makers, big authorized participants, they're able to wash out any gains from internal trading. So if, you know, even in the S&P, if, you know, stock X goes out and stock Y comes in and stock X had an embedded gain, that creates a taxable gain in the portfolio, even if at the end of the year, the S&P is down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they still have to distribute that taxable gain. ETFs get away from that by allowing them to wash out that gain by effectively handing low basis shares out to the street. So the ETF loophole, what what does that cover? Well, from a tax perspective, it covers anything that you can do in-kind transactions with. And and technically, mutual funds could do this too, but they don't. What, why don't they? Um, because it's complicated and it requires a lot of coordination with the street. You have to have a partner on the street, it's technically called an authorized participant, uh-huh. that's willing to do those in-kind creations and redemptions of shares. So complicated that you do profit distributions even on a losing or flat year, it's not worth it? That just seems like that is a huge disadvantage for mutual funds relative to to ETFs. Well, one of the challenges in a traditional mutual fund environment is for you as an authorized participant to agree to do those in-kind trades, you need to know what's in the basket. Like, what are you going to get? What do I have to deliver? If you're going to know, then there's got to be some transparency. Most mutual funds don't want to tell you what's under the hood, right? Most mutual funds are still actively managed by assets, Mm -hmm. and most active managers don't want to tell you what they're doing on a day-to-day basis. And that makes that arbitrage process really difficult, Uh, but it's baked into how ETFs work. That in-kind creation redemption is sort of the core of how ETFs work. 
And so that doesn't make much of a difference in terms of the the capital gains distribution, or does the loophole cover that? No, the loophole. I mean, and, and loophole is, as I think, a the forty. It's Act. an aggressive word, but right. it really, what we're talking about here is part of the IRS approach, right? How mm-hmm. the IRS treats ETFs. It allows in-kind transactions to be untaxed, mm-hmm. right? And that tax basis then can get washed out. So that covers really any kind of ETF, any kind of investment that you'd want to make, whether it's bonds, whether it's, uh, you know, equities, uh, you know, you can get away with that in-kind creation redemption to wash out those capital gains. So for taxable accounts, ETFs have really caught on. Uh, even for non-taxable accounts, the fact that you can trade it intraday with some price certainty, I think, has been the other major issue. Let's talk a little bit about some of the issues that are surrounding ETFs today. We we have a little bit of a uh, fathead long tail problem. <laughs> Who are you calling it, a fathead? That's right. In that <laughs> in that ETF issuance and underwriting is very top heavy. You have Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street. Dominating. I mean, that's yeah. the vast majority of seventy percent of the assets. Something assets, like that. Yeah. not necessarily. What, what is there? Twenty one hundred. Yeah, it's over two thousand ETFs right now. Um, and by number, sure, BlackRock in particular has a large number. I think it's four hundred ETFs wow. in the in the stable. Twenty percent. Yeah, and to put that in perspective, you know, back in the two thousands, early two thousands, there were one hundred and fifty, two hundred ETFs. So there's been really fifteen years of phenomenal asset and product growth really now covering virtually every corner of the investment market from physical gold to junk bonds. So why those, first of all, why the three biggest dominating? And then the next question is, why those three? But I kind of have a a sneaking suspicion. Why those three? So so why just, why is it so dominated by these giant firms? Well, because the economies of scale here are dramatic. Mm -hmm. And one of the the sort of accidental advantages of ETFs, it wasn't designed for this, is that they have become incredibly cheap. And we're in the midst of a price war that's driving them down towards the price of zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can be that cheap because running an incremental dollar in the S&P 500 costs literally no money, right? right. If, I, if if BlackRock, which manages, I don't no idea. Six trillion, trillion dollars. Trillion dollars probably a trillion dollars of that is tied to large cap US equity. For them probably to, more. For them to manage an additional dollar, literally doesn't cost them right. anything. And so the marginal cost of production in big index shops uh-huh. is so low, they can price these products at three, four, five, eight basis points and still eventually make enough money to survive. Uh, very tough for uh, Ritholtz Wealth Management to get into the ETF game at three basis points and ever make a dime. Yeah, to, to launch an ETF, and we I explored this last summer. I looked at a couple of interesting ideas. It's a couple of hundred thousand dollars to half a million to launch. By the time you get done with record keeping and custodianships and two bips here and three bips there and five bips, there's a lot of expenses that go into yeah. it that it's not like, hey, here's an idea. Let's launch a, an ETF. It's a, a complicated legal accounting underwriting issue for a small shop. But for Vanguard or BlackRock or State Street, if they want to crank out a different ETF every day— how hard is that for Yeah, them? it's not hard at all. And it is getting easier. There's a big new set of rulemaking out of the SEC that's actually in common period right now that would clean up that process and maybe drive the cost for a new issuer down from that couple hundred thousand to maybe a hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it would have become less of an exception to the rule and more of an approved activity. 
but there's still work that's got to get done, and you have to establish all those relationships. So uh, those big players have that entrenched economy of scale that I think is really tough to compete with, and that's why you've seen very few upstarts, if you will, really get a lot of traction. So we've been spending a lot of time talking about equities. Let's talk about bonds mm -hmm. for a minute. There are lots and lots of dollars allocated to bond ETFs, so much so that it's had a giant impact on how bonds are traded and what Wall Street bond desks look like today. You're the first person who brought this to my attention. Explain what what has been taking place over the past decade? Well, we have two things going on at the same time. One is because of regulation, we no longer have banks having giant bond desks, right? They, they had to basically get out of that business. Was it regulations <clears throat> or was it zero interest rates and they weren't making any money? Both, right? Okay. So the hoops you had to jump through to, to run an 80-style bond desk were significant. Mm -hmm. And the capital allocation was no longer making all that much money. There were better things for them to do with that risk capital. So you had that sort of abandonment of the bond market by traditional players. But at the same time, you had lots of folks that still wanted to invest in bonds. Mm -hmm. Investing in individual bonds, I'm sure you know, is kind of a pain in the neck. Right. right? Even even if you're just trying to buy treasury, sure, you can go to treasury.gov and, and go do it all direct. You want to do a, a laddered bond uh, portfolio or you want a portfolio of muni that are high quality yeah. in this. If it's you're in a, a high tax state, it's not easy it's to do. It's not easy to do. And even as a professional investor, you're going to pay significant spreads, 20, 40, 80 basis point spreads, getting in and out of these positions. To say nothing if of you're junk bonds. If you wait, you can cut those 80 bit spreads down to like 60. <laughs> there you so go. You, you, That's if a bargain. You're patient, you could, right. you could find something in the middle. But, but it's a valid point. It's not easy to, to execute these trades. Right. But it's an asset class most investors should be in. And mm -hmm. so that's why we've had bond mutual funds. Okay, bond mutual funds are fine. But again, you have all these pricing issues. You've got these embedded tax issues, which are even worse in most bond portfolios because most people in their bond portfolios want to hold a certain maturity. Like I want to hold you know, right. five years my target duration or something like that. Mm -hmm. To hold that, it means you have to constantly be selling something and buying something else in order to hold that duration or that maturity. Um, and that creates taxes when you do that, particularly if you're in a bond market with rising prices and declining rates. Let, so let me, let's just delve into that. When you say people have to sell stuff to hold the same duration, it says time goes by. Hey, suddenly things that were four and a half years become five years and hit your duration. That's out, and you have to add other stuff to make Ex up. For exactly, that. and so, so if if you're in a you know an iShares bond fund that says that this is a five year you know muni fund or whatever, um, as that five year becomes four, you have to sell it, and mm -hmm. as that seven year became five, you have to buy it. And if you're in an environment where the prices of those bonds have been going up, which has been where we've been for a sure. long time, thirty two years, then you've got those capital gains from that sales process, and the ETF helps you get rid of some of that. So. The thing that I find fascinating is that the bond desks have essentially been replaced by BlackRock. Now when people want to do a big bond allocation, they don't call Goldman or Morgan Stanley necessarily or UBS or Credit Suisse. They call BlackRock. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, it's BlackRock, and really, it's also folks like Pimco, mm -hmm. right? And you know, Pimco, I think, is mostly known as being the sort of Bill Gross's old big shop for mm -hmm. actively managed mutual funds. They have a huge ETF presence now. They're actually the largest actively managed ETF provider, and yeah, they have become the bond desk for the world. If Mexico wants to float a new issue, they call BlackRock and or they call Pimco, and they ask them if they'll take down the whole thing, and that may never trade. You. May may never actually see it go across. Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. 
Let, let's talk about your long and wacky career. <laughs> you began as an accountant slash screenwriter. How, how the hell does that happen? Well, I, I, you know, I think like a lot of people, I, I went to college having no idea what I wanted to do, and I got a creative writing degree, and then headed to Hollywood to write the Great American Screenplay, mm-hmm. uh, and instead ended up writing the Great American Payroll Check. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, I, I went to Hollywood. I, I ended up uh, locked into a production company just because I needed work, hoping that I'd be able to write for a living. And actually found that I was more fascinated by the process of producing television than anything else and mm-hmm. um, and got really interested in the business itself. And that led me to think I should go back and get a business degree, which is what I did, uh, and then sort of fell in love with investing from there. So, so you go to Boston University for an MBA, yep. is that right? And then how do you then move sideways into finance? How, what What led you you were at Cerulli Associates yeah so when I was at BU I was studying with um, Zvi Bodhi relatively well-known professor there on investments uh, and really he sort of sparked a lot of my interest in investing uh, and one of my classmates was the then wife of Kurt Cerulli and he and I started Cerulli Associates to do really sort of consulting work and mostly advisor survey type work mm-hmm. for big asset managers because at that time this was uh, very early 90s just coming out of the late 80s, uh, we were in this phase shift from the traditional brokerage commission model to true independent fee-only financial advisors. And that really was changing the game for asset managers. That that was early 90s. That was way, way early in the process. I mean, Ken Fisher was doing yeah. his gig then, and other people had started back then, but it was still a tiny percentage overall. What made you say, oh, this is the future? Uh, because that's where consulting clients wanted to pay us. Okay. <laughs> so we had firms market like- Market forces. Right, market forces. We had firms like Fidelity and what was then Wells Fargo Nico Investment Advisors, which became Barclays Global Investors and State Street. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and actually, one of my first clients was Jan Van Eck here in the city of oh, Van sure. Eck. And, uh, and they were all trying to figure out how this shift, both in the defined contribution space, which was really kicking off hard in the early 90s, uh, and in the fee-only financial advisor business, how that was going to change their investment management practices from a product structure standpoint, from a, how do I sell to these people if I'm not mm-hmm. giving them trips to Hawaii or paying them you know, back-end loads or all of those horrible ways of, uh, of, of selling products. So Non-fiduciary we, sales. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, so you know, at that point, as a fairly wet behind the ears, early 20s kid, I was making phone calls to financial advisors and asking about their practices. And, and that really you know, was, it was an exciting place to be because it was very new. When, when was the big move from defined benefits to defined contributions slash 401k? When, when did that really ramp up? Right about then. I mean, it was it was sort of towards the end. I mean, certainly coming out of the financial, well, what was what we called then the financial crisis, 1987. Um, <laughs> that was a hiccup. That, <laughs> it was a little minor, minor right. hiccup then. But back in the days of Glass-Steagall, a one-day 23% collapse in the market doesn't spill over. Today, it's a little different. A little different, a little different. That was the first time I lost a lot of money, was in 1987. Um, but the... Uh, you know, that was really the hockey stick of the takeoff in 401k. It's when Vanguard really got into that business. It's when Fidelity got into that business. Uh, and, you know, the assets really started flowing in, and it implied getting rid of all these costs in the system, all these loads, everything else. You can't put any of that into a 401k. ERISA doesn't let you. Right. So I sometimes describe you as there at the beginning when ETFs were created, and you push back on that all the time. 
What was your role in, in the early days of, of ETFs? Yeah, so early, the early days of ETFs, which is really 93, was SPY. Uh, slightly before that was the Toronto Index Participation Securities tips. Um, and then the Web's products that I worked on was 94, 95. I think they finally launched in 95. Mm -hmm. um, when did the Qs launch? It was not much after that, Yeah, it was right? in all in the same window. Mm -hmm. um, I think the Qs might have been a little bit later. Like yeah. It might have been 98. Eight. Um, but the, the the reason I push back is because this is a classic success has a thousand fathers problem. Right. Um, you know, I Jim Ross, you know, who you've had on the show from who's State great. Street, I love who's him. great. Um, you know, he he often sort of tells the story of like, yeah, I was in the room when Spy was created. I was getting coffee, <laughs> right? And I think that by the way, another guy who started as an accountant and could crunch yeah. the numbers, and they said we better keep Jim around. He seems to understand. He seems all to this. understand the plumbing. Yeah. Um, and and I think that that's very true. I was very young. There were you know the people who were really the intellect behind this, which really required a lot of thinking through you know, market mechanics and regulatory issues, were folks like Nate Most at the Amex or even Patty Dunn at Wells Fargo Nico, both of whom have passed away. I mean, it, it is a generation ago of some very bright thinkers that really drove the foundation of this and a bunch of Yahoo kids that were sitting there trying to figure out how to sell this to people. Huh. Quite fascinating. You know, there's a little background. You were CIO at ETF.com, right? Back in the day, yeah. Then you leave and you run the ETF department at FactSet? Yeah, so originally ETF.com founded by a guy named Jim Wyant. He brought a bunch of us in to sort of build that business in the- in I've the, been to Jim's conference. You've been to in, John, Jim's uh, events. In Spain, which was quite fascinating. Yeah, and he had the vision of building this business you know, a decade ago. And really, there were three legs of that stool. There was sort of the media business, which we now know as ETF.com. We publish a magazine, the ETF Report, which we've been publishing for 12 years or something wow. like that now. Um, there was a conference business, which became Inside ETFs. I go to that event in January. In That's a fantastic event. Thousands of advisors. Yeah, huge literally 2,000 people. That's the bi I, that may be the biggest single room I ever stood at a podium and looked out at, and it was... It just goes huge, for miles. Huge. It's amazing. And then the third leg of the stool was a data and analytics business, which was the part that I came in to build. Mm -hmm. um, and we were a venture capital backed startup at that point, and we sold the pieces off. Uh, you know, over the course of a couple of years, the in the conference business was sold to Informa, which is a huge conference company mm -hmm. based in London. The uh, data and analytics business that I was running was sold to Factset, and I went with it to Factset for right. a year. Uh, and then the media business was sold to what was then Bats, and then became SIBO Global Markets, uh, and then they brought me back in to run it. So you you were hired as CEO. Tap. What what is this managing director? Well, title? they change, they they can't can't have too many CEOs in a right. publicly traded company. So I, they... I gotcha. <laughs> that that makes a lot of sense. So so let's. You're the perfect person to ask this question. I've discussed how ETFs come to be someone has an idea and they run through a bunch of machinery and then out of the other end of that factory comes some ETF but I don't think people really understand how ETFs are actually put together walk us through what a, an ETF launch is like how, from from conception to trading well in the current environment right with the current regulatory structure you know you're actually a classic case a, a large successful RIA believes they have a bit of a better mousetrap whatever mm -hmm. that is they're actively managed equity strategy they've got a great stock picker we have a fantastic Bitcoin uh, hedge we're, we're there you thinking go of turning into an ETF right so you so what you do you <laughs> really got two options one is you go down this path entirely on your own and effectively what you're doing is 
launching a mutual fund, so it's mm-hmm. a 40 act mutual fund, you have to get a board, you have to get a fund accountant, you got to get all that stuff in place. And then after you've done all of that work, you have to go to the SEC and have this big mother may I conversation right. about whether or not you can break all of the rules that are in the 40 <laughs> Act. And it's called the exemptive release relief process. You're asking for exemptions and they let you do things like treat authorized participants differently than common shareholders and allowing it to trade on an exchange, which a normal mutual fund can't. So there's all these rules that you have to break to be an ETF. That's changing, hopefully. What's that? Forward. What's the new system going to look like? The new system is going to be very straightforward. They'll just basically be the same set of forms you fill out for a mutual fund, and you'll check a box for ETF instead. And all of those distinctions about like being able to trade on exchange will just come baked in. Mm-hmm. So you won't need a special privilege. You'll just be part of an, an existing piece of regulation. Is that likely to occur? 100%. Uh, really? Yeah. So, so this is going to happen. This is going to happen. We're in the comment period for it now. It's called the ETF rule is what it's being called. And it's literally just a new piece of text that's going into the 1940 Act right. to allow ETFs to happen. And it should compress the time to market. Right now, it's maybe six months for an easy ETF to come to market. Right. We can probably get that down to two months. Um, and the cost will go from, like you said, a couple hundred thousand bucks to maybe twenty to 50000 if it's really simple and you have those existing mutual fund relationships in place. Place. So you specifically said to me earlier there are over 2,000 ETFs. Yep. Once we make it faster, cheaper, easier to launch these, what's that number going to go? Are we going to have 10,000? E- well, Will there got- be more ETFs than the 11,000 hedge funds that are out there? <laughs> or the 8,000 mutual funds? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there is a natural diminishing set of returns on that. I don't think we're going to end up with 8,000 like we have in mutual funds. Um, largely because I think they won't be successful in gathering assets. And there are some fixed costs to, to running an ETF. So I think that we'll, it'll slow down a little bit. Where we haven't seen the big entrance yet is, frankly, the big active managers, right? There's no Growth Fund of America ETF, uh-huh. right? Putnam isn't in this space. There are all sorts of people who are not in the ETF space. And even the big traditional asset managers like Fidelity have really just stuck their toes in the water with a couple of index products. There's no Contra Fund ETF. ETF. There's no Magellan ETF. And I think until that shoe drops, we're not going to see massive uh, inflows there. So you, you you referenced the ability to gather assets. You need a certain critical mass. The number I've heard kicked about is 50 million. Some people have said 100 million. Yeah, something like that. What What is it that precludes an ETF from gathering that mass? I, I remember a couple of years ago, when the um, hack ETF mm-hmm. came out, the the cybersecurity, that just came out, and then suddenly there was the Sony hack and the North Korean hack, and that exploded. That became a billion, billion dollar dollars, ETF. yeah, almost overnight. the The biggest issue with ETFs is they are the classic bought not sold product, meaning you you make this ETF, you put it out there on the exchange. Pretty much literally anybody who can get access to the to a, a U.S. equity exchange will be able to buy it. Right. But then how do you convince anybody that they should buy it? And it's a it's just classic push marketing. They have you have to put out ads or you have to get a wholesaler to go call on your office and try to convince you to switch out of this other ETF into this new ETF. That's just hard, and it requires substantial capital if you don't have an entrenched distribution system. Mm-hmm. So if you're Fidelity and you've got you know hundreds of wholesalers that are out there talking to people all the time. 
tossing ETFs in the bag isn't a big deal. If you're an RA building something from scratch, mm -hmm. you're not in the business of distribution. That's right. not what you do. Right. You're an RAA. So figuring out how to, to catch lightning in a bottle and get all these other people to start participating in your big idea it's not obvious, and and I think we've seen a lot of people come to market with some pretty interesting ideas that never get that traction. I, I remember she when she first came out. Yep. Between the the stock symbol, which there have been studies that shown tickers memorable matter. ticker symbols make oh, a yeah. difference, to the whole controversy of the the girl right. uh, facing off with the bull down in Lower Broadway uh, right. near Wall Street. Uh, to is it Calsters was the yep. one who funded the original couple of hundred, yeah, couple of, which is kind of still where it is. Right. Still How has that not caught on? I'm kind of shocked. Well, you know, I who knows what catches and what doesn't. Right. That that is a, a classic first mover into the ESG space. Mm -hmm. The women in governance is the core behind that product. And it has definitely resonated with a certain institutional audience, mm -hmm. but it hasn't resonated with mom and pop investors. It hasn't resonated with a raft of financial advisors. Um, you know, I have some theories on that. It is a one-off product. It's not part of a suite of ESG products. Mm -hmm. I think that can be tough to sell a one-off product because what are you going to do? Take out billboards that just talk about SAG right. across Doesn't make the whole any sense. You know, the the marketing spend that would be required would be enormous. What What about? Um, there's been a, a new potty TF floated. I think it should go with the symbol weed. Of but, course it should. But yeah. every, I, but I don't know if that's available if someone else has it, or if it's too in your face. It's probably too in your for, face. For right. the SEC, if it's a medical marijuana. Well, the other one is MJ, which is pretty close. Right, which yeah. is Mary Jane. I right. mean, how is that? Well, they could say it stands for marijuana, but right. we know what MJ really is. <laughs> um, so, so what are your thoughts on these real niche specialty ETFs? I think they have a place, right? I mean, niche products in the financial market are not something new. They're tiny little niche mutual funds that mm -hmm. are covering a lot of the same spaces. Um, I think they have a place in the market for folks that are speculating on those narrow themes. The danger is because these are bought, not sold. Uh -huh. You can create a story about how you know my mom ends up reading something, you know, or seeing something on TV and gets all excited about it, and it turns out that it's triple leveraged oil or something like that, right. which she has no business investing in. And because ETFs are this sort of great democratizing flattener of investment assets, uh, really almost anything you could want to do, you can do in an ETF, whether that's a good idea or not. That's a whole and, different. And so I think there are some issues around that. But, um, you know, I'm, I tend to be a little bit of a libertarian on these things. I think we shouldn't stop. We shouldn't keep people from making these products because we're concerned they're they'll be misused. We should focus on investor education. So eventually there'll be a Darwinian competition. And when there's whatever, 3,000, 10,000 ETFs, some will catch a little bit of lightning in a bottle, as you mentioned. Others uh, won't. Is this just going to eventually winnow down to a core thou Or is it going to be like the mutual fund world where there's tens of thousands? If you include all the share classes, it's like 28. Well, the, 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 the one thing that ETFs have going for them in this regard is that it actually is expensive and problematic to let a tiny little ETF, you know, million dollar ETF that never trades, mm -hmm. that thing eventually will get delisted, right? right? These things are listed on exchanges. Exchanges don't want to have their, you know, product list just 
filled up with this junk, cruft right. of junk. So these products will eventually get delisted. There are sort of ongoing maintenance costs. You have to have a board meeting for this darn thing every right. year, right? There are hard costs associated with it. So we do see ETFs close with, I think, a higher frequency than mutual funds. That's a good thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, last year, I think we had a couple hundred ETFs launch. We had a couple hundred ETFs close. We ended up positive by maybe 100 new ETFs. That's all it was. I think that's a very healthy thing. We have been speaking with Dave Nadig. He is the managing director at ETF.com. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and come back for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things ETF-related. You can find that at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, Bloomberg.com, wherever finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can check out my daily column at the opinion section of bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Thank you so much for doing this. I've been I've been thinking about having you here for forever, and I know you are uh, kind of mobile these days. Yeah, back and the, forth between Boston and New York. Usually, we do this over dinner, so it's that <laughs> that is actually true. And I, every time I finish, I'm like, I got to get that guy in the studio. He really knows about <laughs> these ETF things. One one day, one day they're going to catch on. So, um. There's a bunch of stuff we didn't get to. Let me let me go through some of the questions we missed. Although you really touched on, so we, we talked about the new regulations. We talked about the number of ETFs winking in and out of existence. You have a bird's eye view. What what's the biggest mistake people who are developing new ETFs make? in the process from conception to launch? Oh, it, I think it's absolutely distribution, right? D it's, that's it, it. It's 100% distribution. If you look at the folks that come in and are successful now, not 10 years ago, but now, they come in, at your your colleague here at Bloomberg, Eric Balchuna, says, you know, bring your own assets, BYOA, right? And, you know, we've recently seen J.P. Morgan just basically decide to get into this space. They decided by moving a bunch of internal assets out of other funds, maybe separate accounts, maybe institutional clients, and just rolling that into ETFs. Boom, they're multi-billion dollar complex. How, how, do, you, how do you do that? Hey, the, that SMA you have, congratulations, it's now an ETF. But that's what we've seen, right? So Goldman did this when they launched GSLC, which is the Goldman Sachs large cap is what it stands for. And it's uh -huh. a smart beta fund they launched at nine basis points. And everybody was like, ooh, smart beta at nine basis points. You know, that's really smart of them. I was like, no, that's probably what the SMA was charging. And that's so the only way just, they could map that in. Right. So that's just rolling it from A to B. And right. No and, you know, there may be, you know, depending on the kind of investor, maybe there's tax implications to keep you from doing that. But for the most part, if you're mapping institutional money in, their taxes are not an issue. So what I've been hearing from you is that the ETF space, now dominated by three giants... Um, and a whole lot of small little guppies nipping at their heels is going to be dominated by three giants plus 100 other really big companies and a handful of guppies still nipping at everybody's Yeah, heels. I think we're going to see a, a healthy middle tier right mm -hmm. below that third. And I would actually— Which doesn't exist now. It's a barbell. 
Well, it's a there is a there is a healthy middle tier. It is firms like Goldman and J.P. Mm-hmm. Morgan and Schwab, right? I don't think anybody's going to worry about Schwab being a guppy in this right. space, right? The They're pulling in, in tens of billions of dollars right. in the space. Now, that's not a lot compared to the six trillion BlackRock runs or whatever it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's they are healthy in it for the long haul players. And then there's a tier of folks that have been in this business for a long time and aren't going anywhere. Wisdom Tree, Van Eck, Oppenheimer, folks like that. Uh, you know, they're in this for the long haul and they're doing just fine. Thank you very much. We're going to see more and more new players. Some of those new players are going to have big old names and some of them are going to be people we never heard of. You you mentioned your mom is in a 3X leveraged oil <laughs> oil ETF. What, uh, explain the mechanism why all these leveraged ETFs have such dramatic slippage due to the cost of their their carry yeah well it it comes down to compounding math and math is always great for radio right where you can illustrate it sure, but, absolutely. but but it really comes down to the fact that when you go up 10 percent and then you come down 10 percent you don't end up where you started right if you have a hundred dollars and you go up 10 percent you're at 110 at 110 you go down 10 percent you don't go back down to 100 right you go down 11 dollars you're right. at 99 right that compounding math up and down is exactly what messes up most of these daily reset leveraged or inverse products because they reset their exposure every single day. And they're using futures and other products that are not cheap. Is usually it? swaps. swaps. Right? So most of these so products- So there's a cost of carry every day. There's usually a cost embedded in those swaps, which is less transparent than I would like. I'd, I'd love to see explicit swap pricing mm-hmm. out there. But as I'm sure you know, swap pricing tends to get buried in the total return of the swap. It doesn't explicitly get called out all the time. Right. Um, and so that's problematic. But most of these products work with a giant cash balance, which is the, technically what they own, quote unquote, is this giant cash balance, which is why they're allowed to do it. And then they have this notional overnight settled swap for whatever the pattern of returns is they want. Triple leveraged oil, inverse S&P, you name it. And um, we didn't get to the Bitcoin uh, <laughs> ETF that's supposedly coming out before we do that, I have to touch on GLD, the gold yep. ETF. There was a wonderful Wall Street Journal column on how GLD was created by the World's Gold Council that had a problem with all this gold piling up in warehouses in what was that early two thousands, yep. and GLD is launched, and it just becomes the timing was just fortuitous. It becomes briefly bigger than the the spiders at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, are, are we going to see? So it made trading gold. You don't have to buy physical gold. You don't have to buy gold futures. And the hell with the junior miners, which have always been problematic. You could buy GLD. Are we going to see something similar with the Bitcoin ETF? I think we are eventually. Right now, I'm I'm not a I'm not involved in the regulatory process. You know, Sebo Global Markets has a group that's working on some of this stuff. So, you know, it is sort of out there in the sphere around me. But I think ultimately, I think about Bitcoin as being a, a digital gold variant. Right. Um. You know, it, some whether- people have argued the the rise of Bitcoin is why gold. Despite all of the craziness in the political hasn't, world, hasn't rocketed. Right, yeah. this should be a good environment for gold, but it's not. It hasn't I, I, low inflation aside, in the end of the QE, pro- the problem I have with with Bitcoin is the same problem I have with gold in these structures, which is if you're buying it from sort of a guns and butter fear perspective, right? You know, you can't go get a Bitcoin out of a vault and right. do anything with it any more than you can get gold out of a vault and do something with it 
if what you did was buy it on an exchange somewhere, now you're living with the custody issues that are in, inherent in that. Now, I'm not worried about that. I'm not a guns and butter investor. but Guns a, and bottled water investor. <laughs> there you go. More, um, more accurately. More accurately. The, but, by the way, the Bitcoin question I didn't ask you during the broadcast portion was uh, Bitcoin. A fraud or merely just a scam? <laughs> but the reason I didn't ask is because I didn't want the email to light up. And I don't believe it's a full-on scam. I, I, I suspect North Korea is involved, and I suspect <laughs> Iran is busy mining bitcoins. Um, and there are a lot of other unsavory characters. When, when I have people killed, I do it. I pay for it <laughs> you with pay Bitcoin. for it with Bitcoin. But, well, you know, you're, all you're kidding aside— modern assassin, yeah. Isn't— isn't that some of the issues that the SEC has to be considering when, gee, this, it's such an unregulated currency, we have no idea what's going on with it. Is it legitimately used for money laundering, for drug trafficking, for whatever? How can the SEC approve that if the IRS and the Treasury Department is fighting their own war? against Bitcoin. You know, people or does that enter the calculus? I, well, so I have no idea what's going on in the regulator's head. Okay. It's not my job. But I would say people made this argument about gold for a long time. Really? Right. People made this argument in the 60s and 70s and 80s about Krugrands, right? right? And I remember one of my very first jobs before, like while I was in college, was helping somebody at a in a treasurer's office at a global manufacturer. They made water treatment equipment. I never heard that. That's and, fascinating. And, and they actually transacted in some countries where we had hyperinflation, the Zimbabwe, places right. like that, transactions were literally getting done in stacks of Krugrands. Wow. And there were real concerns about like, well, gold has become in this post Bretton Woods environment, effectively the currency of criminals, right? That's the exact same set of arguments That's we're amazing. having right now. That's amazing. You know, I used to speak at the, uh, the Agora group used to do this wonderful uh, conference, annual conference in Vancouver every August. Um, around the time we we're recording this. And it was another giant event. And if you've ever spent any time in Vancouver, it's a fantastic beautiful. city. Yeah. Love, love, Great love food. Vancouver. Yeah. Fantastic food. Everybody in the city is beautiful. It's like, <laughs> it's such a, like a... Except when we show up and then well, we bring we the, lower average the average down. Exactly, right. So um, I remember they would do this whiskey bar, which was a panel where the audience would throw questions at people. And um, this was 09, 10, 11... And I remember being one of the only stock bulls there. Not exactly, uh, especially in 11, I talked about why, how gold will end its run, not with a whimper, but with a spike and a collapse. And, and the fascinating thing was someone asked the question, don't you want to have some, some bars of gold in case you have to up and, and flee? And I'm like, well, listen, dudes, you know, every, all you folks up here, I don't see a whole lot of fellow tribesmen here. And and Jews have learned, always have a bag packed by the front door, by the back door, because you never know when there's going to be a knock and you have to flee. And gold is heavy. You, you can't take a lot of gold. You but get, you can carry a lot of Bitcoin with you. Uh, you can carry all the Bitcoin you want or a bag of diamonds, but to, to flee with any sizable amount right. of gold is just not, not going to happen. And it was said in jest, but the people who are claiming you could do these giant... Right, gold transact. Uh, that uh, you you can't move millions of dollars worth of gold as easily as you can do that with Bitcoin. Right, and I you know I tend to be I'm a bit of a Bitcoin skeptic, not because I think I think the underlying technology is super interesting, and I actually think that there's you know something like there there will be something that the blockchain ends up driving that will change the way we think about financial transactions. I just think it's probably. 
I think we're in the MySpace era. I don't think we're in the Facebook era of Bitcoin. Dogpile and AltaVista? Yeah. Is yeah, that what you're saying? Yeah, there you go. Exactly. I, I, I call uh, blockchain and Bitcoin Linux for libertarians. Yeah, there you go. So I think I think that works. Um, <laughs> so, so send your angry emails to... Um, Dave at cboe.com and he'll he'll be happy to respond to any of your your Bitcoin questions. <laughs> uh, you know I left I left out a question about your background that I want to get to. Um, in the late 90s, you were running an experimental or co-running an experimental fund. Tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, after the after Barclays bought the indexing business and became BGI, uh, myself and my then partner Don Luskin <coughs> raised. I'm, I'm sorry, who? Don Luskin. I know one of your favorite people. Uh, uh, not not I've, familiar. I've crossed swords with him. You I, have. I used to do Cudlow and Kramer. Yeah, he was my my foil. Yeah. And and heading into the financial crisis, he, he seems to think I like actively dislike him. I don't. He just could not have been more bullish and more wrong in 07 and 08, and I feel an obligation to call people out when they're wrong. <laughs> I read something the other day where he thinks I'm like uh, after him or hate him. Uh, until you mentioned to me that you were working way back when, which I was stunned to learn, I, I, I harbor no animus. I just think, dude, your whatever your methodology was, it was you missed the worst <laughs> financial— Don wrote a piece. Was that the Washington Post piece? I don't know. So I believe there was a piece that was written. I don't remember who wrote it. Maybe it wasn't him. Somebody wrote a piece on the in the Washington Post, an opinion piece, um, on the Saturday saying, uh, you know, the economy is fine, everything is great, and then Sunday Lehman quoted. And, that always, and those and, things always happen. And it, I mean, but the timing could not have possibly been any Well, we, we did really well on the timing of our venture, too, because we launched a tech fund pretty much at the tail end of the hockey stick in the tech boom. Late 90s? Late 90s, 99, yeah. 2000. Ooh. And, uh, and we did, uh, we raised a bunch of venture capital money. We launched an actively managed tech fund called Open Fund. Which now, was, well, that was the most interesting part yeah. of what you guys did. You were the first totally transparent mutual fund. Yeah, and even more transparent than ETFs. We actually had a camera on our trading floor and broadcast our tickets. Like, like ticket by ticket. So you couldn't um, have been short a whole lot of stuff. No, no. But we, you know, we most we did very, very well in our first like six months. We mm. were, you know, we beat. If you remember the Munder Net Net Fund, we oh beat absolutely, the, we beat that one for the first six months. We skyrocketed, raised a bunch of money, and then the Ryan Jacobs just Fund went somewhere crazily yeah. down the other end of this. You know, we we just roller coastered that thing. Yeah, um, because you know the timing was awful. If we'd launched two years earlier, I probably wouldn't be sitting here talking about ETF. Um, but it was <laughs> it was a humbling experience in that I, I think until you've sat in the chair of an active manager on a trading desk, sure, you don't quite understand what it's like to lose a lot of somebody else's money. Oh, it's it's horrific. It's it is a even if you were if you were experience. in a retail brokerage shop, if you were trading yeah. a, a house account, uh, anytime you do anything like that where it's someone else's money and market forces go against you. It's nauseating. You want to throw up. Yeah. No. I and we. I had plenty of folks actually throw up off my trading desk uh, <laughs> during during the worst of it. And it was, uh, you know, it was a lot of fun. Sure, we raised a bunch of money. We, you know, were masters of the universe for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. um, 
but it was I think that experience of losing other people's money and my own, obviously, because mm-hmm. we were, you know, all of my money was in this fund. You mentioned eighty seven, so two thousand yeah. hurt left a mark also. Yeah, that one that one hurt a lot too, and that was, um, you know, it was to some extent humiliating. You don't love it when your ideas go that bad. Well, but it wasn't the idea that was bad. It, it was, was just the timing. The timing. Right. Well, the, the idea of transparency in in investing transactions and not hiding what you're doing, although you always run into the issue of front-running and other questions. Sure. So if you were transparent on a 30-day delay or even a week delay, that pretty much covers a lot of that issue. Well, and a lot of what we were doing was not particularly chaseable because, what, to, to be blunt, what we were doing was flipping IPOs, right? Mm-hmm. We were getting good IPO allocations from the Bear Stearns of the world, et cetera, in the midst of the dot-com boom. Right. And we rode those things, and then we flipped them. And that's basically a core of the strategy was new tech. That's what we did was right. new technology. Um, and so we day traded new technology, which looking back on it is like the most ridiculous sentence I've Had ever Had you uttered. kept those IPO <laughs> issuances, how would you have done? Uh, not so well, because, mm-hmm. you know, if you think back on those, that era, it's Juniper, it's, it's and, Juniper and JDS Uniphase and, and they did great until they stopped. And, yeah. you know, there was a lot of garbage in there and we were all drinking the Kool-Aid of the new economy, man. This time was different. So, so Mark Andreessen, I uh, apology for the name drop, but Mark Andreessen says there's no bad ideas, just early ideas and pets.com was a disaster. But Chewy is now a giant right. uh, success story, and it's a set effectively Pets.com. Well, and I'm sure Amazon is probably the largest seller of pet food in the country. Right? I, you know, I, I'd, I'd shows be up monthly. If they I don't even do yeah. anything. It's so, just on a regular subscribe and save, and all the little dog treats they all show up every month. I think if I if I look back and say there was one thing that I got most wrong about my sense of the economy in 99 2000, uh-huh. it wasn't that the the you know the rise of the internet was going to change how everything worked. It was that it would be concentrated in so few winners. Mm-hmm. Like looking at it now, there actually were so few winners from that era. Just just handfuls. Um, and yet there were hundreds huh. of companies that we were all excited about back then. I remember 96 when um, Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser, mm-hmm. the irrational exuberance speech happened, the general recognition that, hey, these tech stocks have become unmoored from normal valuations. And a lot of these companies have no, you know, Netscape went public right. and then, and was a success. There was a giant hunger and a demand for these companies. Right. And it was Five more years before the March really 2000. Came. Yeah, March I mean, 2000 was more the years. peak, yeah. and and that's pretty much it. But you know, if you followed traditional metrics, you missed a huge run up. So even yeah. though there were a handful of all right, Amazon survived, Apple survived, Microsoft clearly survived. All these companies, Google came out afterwards, but all these companies had giant drawdowns, 70, 80, 90 percent. I remember post.com, you could have bought Amazon for eight bucks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it would have cost you nothing. Well, all it did was turn me into a passive investor again. You know, I started my career in the indexing space. I had this brief, you know, dalliance with ridiculously active management, literally right. day trading tech stocks. And then I sort of, you know, came back to religion, if you will. <laughs> so you, you briefly uh, were eating trafe and then you went right back to, uh, <laughs> I got it. I understand how that works. Um, that That's interesting. So- that we pretty much went through most of the questions I prepped on the way here. 
Is there any ETF thing that you want to talk about? That's a technical radio term, by the way, ETF thing. ETF thing. Is, is, there, is there anything I didn't ask that you think is important that should the listeners should be aware of? Yeah, I think that there, it's reasonable to ask questions about this concentration of assets we have at the top. I think that was a good question. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we look at the Black Rocks and State Streets and Vanguards of the world— and their ownership of equities, it is intense, right? Mm-hmm. They, they combine between all of them, if they all got together as a block to decide how they wanted to vote Apple shares, right. would have substantial influence on what Apple's board did. That's the pushback to passive is- 100%. All these guys, eh, they, what are they going to do? They can't sell the shares, so what do I care what they have to say? But they can vote the shares, can't right. they? Exactly. And, and I what, think what determines how an ETF manager votes their shares? Well, they have a proxy department, right. and I think there's been a lot of discussion about this. And there have been. Um, I had I, I had uh, lunch yesterday with a mutual friend, Jan Van Eck from Van sure. Eck, and he we had a great conversation. I should about get this. him in here. He's a fascinating He's great. guy. Um, but we had this conversation about corporate governance, and he's a proponent of actually limiting the votability of the shares held by past managers, which to me Why? is a bridge too far, precisely for the reason you're doing what you're saying, which is that, well, if they just hold the shares forever and they're never going to sell, then effectively they're just going to be rubber stamps for management forever, and they sort of block not, any Not changes. if they vote their proxy. Well, yeah. and that's, this is my counter, which is that I think if you look at, for instance, just the S&P 500, mm-hmm. three huge ETFs, one from Vanguard, one from State Street, one from BlackRock. I think in 10 years, when you go to decide which S&P ETF you want to buy, you're not going to care much about costs. They're all effectively going to be free. Two They're bits, all going to be well-managed. Right. They're, you know, the performance is going to be within a basis point of each right. other. They'll all be identical. But what will be different is, well, how does BlackRock vote their shares? How does Vanguard huh. vote their shares? And it's I a- think that transparency about what is important in corporate governance is going to start being much more transparent and much more important to investors, not just at the institutional level where it is now. So. We haven't really talked about ESG, and that's really a whole nother conversation, but even non-ESG holdings like the S&P 500 could have an ESG differentiator depending on how BlackRock, Vanguard, or State Street and votes. State Street's been State Street's been really out front with this with their sort of push on women and diversity. Mm-hmm. You know, they actually were very vocal and said, hey, we actually just voted against management on 400 board seat elections in large cap U.S. companies because we wanted to increase the diversity on their boards. That's a pretty bold move. And we've seen, you know, a letter from Larry Fink at BlackRock. That was a big Wall Street Journal op-ed piece about, hey, get your acts together. Yeah. And and so there's a lot of discussion going on around Mm -hmm. this. And some of this is a reaction to demands from the institutional and endowment community, which often has strictures in their investment guidelines that says, you know, we won't invest in fossil fuels or something like that. Um, They're the ones who are pushing this, but I think it's going to become a marketing uh, issue uh, in the next 10 years. I think that's really cool. Larry Fink is another one I have to get in here. He's on my he's on my list. If, if you can make an Your intro, I would, I would appreciate I'll do that. Do what I can. All right. I don't have you all day, so I want to uh, get to some of my favorite questions. Um, these are the questions I ask all of our guests, and they often are revealing and let's start with what's the most important thing that most people don't know about you? Um, you know, I think, you know, we hit briefly on sort of my initial foray into uh, into, the, into screenwriting, <laughs> into trying to be a creative writer. Um, I tend to actually think about myself first and foremost being a writer. Mm-hmm. Right? I happen to have ended up in finance for most of my career. I happen to have been locked into passive investing in ETFs for the last 20 years. But 
ultimately I think of myself as a writer and a communicator and an educator. Huh. Um, and it really does come back. I mean, if I had to go back and change one thing in my career, it would not be getting a creative writing degree from university of Massachusetts. I would hold on to that forever. I might give up the business degree. Really? That, that's interesting. There, there are some parallels there that, uh, I didn't realize that that's quite, quite fascinating. Uh, who are some of your early mentors? Uh, you know, I would say I, I went to Hollywood with some pretty grand ambitions. And the woman that I ended up working for was a woman named Tara Sandler. And she wouldn't recognize me probably in, in retrospect at all. But she mm -hmm. was the producer for this live TV reality show that we were doing every day, 90 minutes live TV called mm -hmm. Home. And she was an unbelievable force in that business. You know, very male-dominated culture, very mm -hmm. young culture. And she sort of showed me that you can be both compassionate and a hard-ass at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, and was both of those things to me and sort of whipped me into shape uh, in a way that I think I desperately needed at the age of 20 or whatever it was when 20. I went, ended up in Hollywood. 40. And, uh, and so she's gone on <laughs> to produce literally hundreds of reality TV shows since then, House Hunters and things like that. Oh, really? And uh, and has had a hugely successful career. But I look back on like, you know, bosses that I've had and mentors that I've had. And yeah, they're investment folks. You know, I, I got to work with Larry Tint at BlackRock and Blake Grossman and folks like that who are super influential. But I, you know, would I be the same person without her, you know, kicking me in the backside? Probably not. Huh. That's that's quite interesting. Uh, what about investors? Who influenced the way you think about the world of investing? You know, it's hard not to say Burton Malkiel, just sure. because you know, if if I look at the you know my current thinking about markets and the difficulty of active management, not the impossibility, but the extreme difficulty of successful active management, um, I always end up coming back to the random walk. Mm -hmm. It just it it rings true. I guess the countervalence to that would be um, for the same era of my life, my early twenties, looking at you know Peter Lynch and his you know much more go to the mall find the stories you like, figure out how they run their business, learn about it, and then invest in it, which is sort of the antithesis of the random walk. Right. Um, I, I think, and then the, the sort of Ben Graham intelligent investor version of that, which is like really understand where the values are in a company. They're, they're almost diametrically opposed in some ways. I tend to think of Peter Lynch and, and, uh, and Ben Graham as sort of opposite ends of the active investing food chain. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that that really helped shape my worldview, having those three in the mix. Let's talk. You mentioned intelligent investor Ben Graham. What are some of your favorite books, fiction, nonfiction, investing related? Oh boy, or otherwise. So, uh, and you and I have talked about books. We have to, we've talked and about we books a lot. We have a, a frightening lot. overlap yeah. between our bookshelves. I tend to read a lot of genre fiction, science fiction in particular. I'm a big Heinlein fan. Heinlein, you yeah, say? Yeah. Do do tell. Mention a few Robert well, Heinlein Well, uh, so Stranger in a Strange Land is one I that grok I- I that book for yeah, sure. Definitely. I, that's one that um, I don't reread it every year. My wife does. There's a copy that just sits on her nightstand. Really? Um, and, that, and she just sort of rolls through it over the course of the year. I used to do that with the um, Lord of the Rings Lord, trilogy, yeah. but I- I had to stop that at a certain point. Yeah. So, but more recently, um, wait before you move beyond Heinlein. Yeah. One of my all-time favorite quotes comes from the Notebooks of Lazarus Long, which is "Never try and teach a pig to sing; <laughs> it wastes your time and it annoys, annoys the, the pig. pig." Yeah. I, I I just I just love that, yeah. and and that having read that fifty years ago and then rereading it a decade ago. 
it was like a light bulb went off, and I'm like, oh, I'm teaching pigs to sing, and I have to stop right. that. It's- the other one, I, for years, my password for like, it's not anymore, so I'll say it, but um, Tanstoffel, there ain't no such thing as a free right, lunch, right? That's right? Which is another Lazarus longism. Right. Um, that, that, you know, all of my passwords had Tanstoffel in the middle Built of it somewhere. It. Yeah. Uh, you could go through a whole run of, of Heinlein books. They, they were like, every 10-year-old science fiction geek- 100%. Discovers Heinlein yeah. and works through the whole- the whole catalog. To to me, the new Heinlein is China Melville. Uh, uh, who, we would who wrote um, the most recent book I read was called The City in the City, uh-huh. uh, which is this bizarre book about how uh, a, a, a sort of I, effectively a new Jerusalem in which you have. It, it's not explicitly saying this, but you have two cultures that don't agree with each other and can't get along for deep held reasons. City in a city. The city in the city and the city. And they um, and they sort of live in the same physical space, but ignore each other. Huh. And it's a really interesting construct. And then there's a detective story that happens in the middle of it. Huh. Um, Quite but interesting. She's, she's sort of my current favorite. What tell them, what else do you what else do you like outside of or from within science? Fiction? I tend to I tend to also read um, stuff that's as far afield from my day to day life as I can get. So I like to read science um, sure. things and philosophy. Um, I've, Give I've us actually a few. Done, um, well, Gödel Escher Bach is one of my favorite God. books of all Didn't time. Didn't we talk about that? I don't know whether we talked so about that. So I before. had a, a philosophy class in college, and that was one of the books. It, it's amazing. It's a st- yeah. It holds up. It, it's not at all dated. It, it, it's absolutely a fan. Someone else mentioned it. I'll have to go through the my list of books and see who else. But but that is just an unbelievable book. Yeah. So I so things like that. Um, there aren't many things like that. No, there aren't. That is that is a. I mean, like the pandas thumb, like anthropology stuff. Pandas thumb, I haven't read. Yeah. Did, um, did you ever read Last Ape Standing? We talked. Yeah, about? yeah, yeah. That For that's sure. a really fascinating uh, science book, and um, and Soul of an Octopus was another. Soul, one. That you turned me onto Soul of an Octopus, which is right up my alley. That kind right. of nonfiction where you go into a world that is not related to anything that you normally just, experience. Just astonishing. Um, Give me more. I have my own list books. I, I want to get your books. Uh, so um, the so I'm a big John Scalzi fan. Uh-huh. John Scalzi is a science fiction writer. I'm reading a great one right now. That won the Hugo, I think, six years ago, called uh, Red Shirts, which uh-huh. is trying to explain why all the red shirts in Star Trek are always getting killed, <laughs> uh, and it creates this whole sort of That's feasible construct about right. what would how how Starfleet could exist in a world where they're just killing off all the people in red shirts. Cannon fodder, and uh, I love stuff like that. I love things great. That, that sort of break the mold. Um, I've actually you had um, I'm pardon the name. Uh, you had a gentleman talking about blockchain. Six or seven episodes. Paul Vigna. Yeah, I've read his book on blockchain. Two books. Two books, right? Yeah. So I've been digging deep into to that sort of part of the technology, um, and then I read a lot of really boring plumbing books about plumbing? the in, about the, about the industry. So like, Fi- so nonfiction, nonfiction stuff um, about re- the me- mechanics of of how finance works. Yeah, like I, I, this is the nerdiest one you'll ever hear of. Rob Posen, who was at Fidelity for years, wrote a book called After the Trade is Made, which is about trade settlement. It's like a thousand pages long. And it is so great. It was it's one of these books where when you read it, you now know this like arcane knowledge that like eight other people in the industry actually understand. Right. I love that kind of thing. I love digging deep into something that we all take for granted and then teasing out the actual underneath underneath 
you know, underpinnings of how it all works. All right, so I'm going to make a book recommendation okay. for you, uh, and I'm assuming you haven't read it because of the date of it, but did you ever read Black Monday by Tim Metz? Nope. All right, so it's the entire history before, during, and after uh, the 87 crash, and all of the things you're describing, the mechanics of the introduction of futures and how portfolio insurance worked and how yeah. the trades were executed and settled and oh, where it broke down, it, it's... And, and it's a world that doesn't that exist anymore. Yeah, yeah. But it, oh, I it see. It surprisingly how. does. Actually, Some there's of it so does, much of right. that that actually still does. We've replaced portfolio insurance with swaps markets and all sorts of other things. But um, there's surprisingly number, a surprising number of things that are still true today that were true in 87. That's a good uh, one, though. I'll take that one. Uh, or, it, absolutely. So so what is uh, what do you find most exciting right now about the ETF space? Uh, well, there's no, obviously... New ideas like the Bitcoin ETF, I think, are interesting. I think the the stuff we talked about in corporate governance, I think, is interesting. I actually think the most interesting thing related-ish to ETFs is what's going on in direct indexing, which is what— Direct indexing. You and I have had this conversation before with custodians. Explain what direct indexing yeah, is. Yeah, so there are firms like M1 Finance and Wealthfront are the two that come to the top of my head that are doing this. Effectively, instead of going to an ETF provider, you go to a broker, like M1 Finance, and you'd say, here's my 100,000 bucks, and you would subscribe to a portfolio. So you mm -hmm. would say, I would like to be in the S&P 500. Here's my $100,000. Well, you can't really buy all the stocks in the S&P 500 in the right weights because the, the, you know, the values don't line up. So instead, what they do is they just roll your desired position into the firm's overall desired position and assign you your fractional ownership of the shares that make up the S&P 500. So at the end of the day, M1 knows we have a trillion dollars, whatever it is, and Dave's 100000 is this economic exposure, so we need to own these shares to back up that economic exposure. So they do the fractional share keeping. So I own a quarter of a share of Apple as opposed to a whole share of Apple. Now, why is that superior to just spending eight bucks and, and three basis points and buying the ETF? Well, it cuts the issuer out of the equation entirely. But it's three bips or five bips. Who cares? Well, but if that three bips can be one... It's four bips. I, to me, look, there's so, a huge difference so, between 1% and So the reason zero. why it's interesting is not because it cuts the three basis points down to right. one. The reason it's interesting is because it makes a direct connection between the intellectual property of investing, which is really mm -hmm. all we care about, right? and me as the investor. We're removing effectively the, all of the middlemen except the transaction engine, which is always going to be a broker somewhere in the middle making right. the transaction. So what that means is I can now go and say, instead of, I want the S&P 500, I can say, I want the S&P 500, but I don't want Apple. Huh. That's impossible to do with an ETF. Uh, like okay. I'd have to go short Apple out of the portfolio. So, it's impossible. So taking the best part about indexing and adding human terrible judgment to Well You and I have disagreed about so, this. So yes, it does open up that, but what it really does is it lets uh, an index provider mass customize in a useful fashion. So now all of a sudden you could come up with six different versions of the S&P 500 that have different ESG slants. Okay. No that gun ownership sense. or no SIN stocks or load up on the SIN stocks because I think that's oversold or whatever. Gotcha. And now I can have that sort of personalized index service. It also lets you do things that are, can be very useful. So like if it's a tax account, you can do single stock uh, tax loss harvesting. 
Um, right, those kinds of issues. You can take into account the fact that you know I, as a SIBO employee, have SIBO stock. Maybe I don't want to load up with more SIBO stock. Right, S and P five hundred. Oh, that exposure. makes sense. Sure. So it lets if me... only GE uh, employees had that. Yeah, exactly. Huh. Well, and that, and that is a real problem for a lot of corporate America. So I think that direct indexing model eventually supplants the entire package product market. Huh. Like, why do I actually need a mutual fund company in the mix? If I want to be in a smart beta product, why do I not just have a direct relationship with Rob Arnott at Research Affiliates? Like, why and can't I just subscribe to his Rafi? I gotcha. That, that's intriguing. We'll see if that catches on. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Boy, other than the big one, like I mean, we talked about Open Fund. Give and, us a different and that one. one Give us an educational one. Um, boy, I've made some really great mistakes as parent. <laughs> parents, parents make mistakes all the time, and uh, you know, I think I underestimate my kids a lot. Um, so, specific examples, you know, I've I've uh, t I've traveled with my daughter pretty extensively. She's now in college, and we went to Paris when she was like fourteen or something like that. And we were walking through some museum and I was like, oh, well, we should see this and we should see that. And we should see this other thing. And she, and she got really annoyed and ended up just saying, I've already seen all of these things on the Internet. I want to see all the things that I can't see and created our own her own path through corners huh. of the Louvre that never get photographed. And like my failure to realize her intelligence is something that I think I've done over and over and over again. That, that's that's kind of interesting. Um so speaking of youth, give us uh, the sort of advice you would give to a millennial or recent college grad who was um, looking for uh, career advice. Yeah, I, I actually get this one a lot. The number one thing I could say is pick up the goddamn phone. Really? Uh, like the number of, and this isn't a millennial thing. I've had pe folks that I've hired who are in their 40s and who are in, you know, their not quite 20s yet. There is this reluctance in modern culture to actually pick up a dang telephone and have a conversation with somebody as opposed to sending them an email or sending them a text. And the difference is enormous. Like huh. that human connection of talking to somebody often is the difference between a lifelong relationship where you can get something out of that relationship in a bilateral way and a transactional relationship where you just simply get a thing done and then forget about it. So actually learning how to make and have good conversations on the phone and in person is a dying art, and it's not something anybody teaches. Huh. Interesting. And our final question, what do you know about the world of ETFs today that you wish you knew 25 years ago? Oh, boy. Um, I I know a lot more about how you can step on your own feet with trading. I used to uh, sort of dismiss that, like, oh, the trading infrastructure works fine, whatever you work with a broker. Uh, most of the horror stories that fill up my mailbox are people who don't have good trading hygiene, who, you know. Good trading hygiene. Right. They, they do something they shouldn't do, right? They put in a market order in the midst of a crazy volatile day, and they put in a market order in some tech ETF, and they're surprised when they get an execution 5% different than what they expected, right? And that's not ETFs being broken. It's the ETFs relying on an ecosystem, which is inherently chaotic. Huh. Quite Quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Dave Nadig. He is the managing director of ETF.com. If you enjoyed this conversation, well, be sure to look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, uh, Stitcher, Overcast, Bloomberg, wherever finer podcasts are sold. And you can see any of the other 200 plus 
uh, conversations we've had. Uh, we love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank my crack staff who helps us keep these conversations together. Medina Parwana is our producer and audio engineer par excellence. Taylor Riggs is our booker producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.